God is like the sun. You cannot always look at it, but without it, you cannot look at anything else. The way we find ourselves is by staring into the sun. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another exciting and exceptional episode. <laughs> hopefully exceptional. Hopefully exciting. Hopefully we don't hear snore. We're not going to hear you snore, but hopefully we don't think about you snoring as we talk today. But we're just excited to hear another episode of Staring into the Sun. Uh, I can't wait for the conversation. My name is John Gibson. I'm a pastor of a church in Centerville, Ohio, and I'm joined here with my esteemed brother. I was going to say colleague. You're, a co- you're kind of a, yeah, you're a colleague league we're thinking together um but my esteemed brother whose name is yeah i'm i'm rob gibson i'm a licensed psychologist i practice in denver colorado a licensed that means he's a professional that's beautiful Uh, but we are two brothers approaching turbulent issues of life and culture from two different perspectives you kind of heard us say i'm a pastor he's a psychologist and kind of looking to capture the deeper truths that explode from the beautiful collision of head and heart uh, those two things collide in lots of different ways in our lives and faith and um, our spiritual selves and our emotional selves, our minds, all those kind of things. And so we're looking to find out what happens when those when that collision happens and have some good conversation. And uh, we're going to have another little bit of conversation today that we hope is fruitful and helpful for you in your life. That's kind of the whole point of us coming together. Well, not the whole point. I guess we like to talk together as brothers. We too. do. It's we been do. really cool, actually. Um, we we would talk a lot before, but we talk even more now because we have an excuse, right? Yes, yes, we do. We have a podcast. And, yes, and it's, it's been good. So for all you who are listening out there, we, we are uh, grateful that you would take the time today to join us on these enumerations of. Uh, thinking uh, that is enumerations even the right word for that i think it is yeah, i don't know works. maybe i just made that up to sound it smart works. today so we're going to start with a launching pad of the conversation today and rob you happen upon this in a book that you read called gulag archipelago i have actually not had the great pleasure of reading this book um, but we're going to use this little selection uh, that rob's going to share with us as a kind of a launching pad for our conversation today so rob why don't you just give us a yep. little bit of context of so people know what the heck this book is what it's about, and then launch us with the little selection you have and give us some explaining. Yeah, yeah. and, and actually, I, I came across this book maybe within the last several years, and I was um, kind of saddened and shocked that I hadn't before. Um, going through high school, um, you know, get exposed to books on human atrocities like the Nazi Germany and um, uh, Japanese internment camps in the U.S. and things like that. Uh, and I had never been exposed to um, the communist gulags uh, in, in Russia uh, during the 19th century, spanned many decades, um, uh, forced imprisonment, labor camps, uh, millions and millions of people died of starvation and forced labor. So anyways, I just I've come across this book in the last year. And uh, he has this section that um, I think uh, is is right here in this area of head and heart, um, where he's himself a journalist, but he's a psychologist, I think, in practice, uh, as far as what he's doing in, in the book. He's studying human the human mind and what happens to people when they're in uh, the circumstances that he describes. Um, so I'm going to read this passage, and uh, we'll see where we go from there, Okay. So he says here, it was granted to me to carry away from my prison years on my bent back, which nearly broke beneath its load, this essential experience, how a human being becomes evil and how good. In the intoxication of youthful successes, I had felt myself to be infallible and I was therefore cruel. In the surfeit of power, I was a murderer and an oppressor. In my most evil moments, I was convinced that I was doing good. And I was well supplied with systematic arguments, and it was only when I lay there on rotting prison straw that I sensed within myself the first stirrings of good. Gradually it was disclosed to me that the line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart. And through all human hearts, this line shifts inside us, it oscillates with the years, And even within hearts overwhelmed by evil, one small bridgehead of good is retained. And even in the best of all hearts, there remains an unrooted, unuprooted, small corner of evil. Since then, I have come to understand the truth of all religions of the world. They struggle with the evil inside a human being, inside every human being. 
And I Whoa. read that, yes, right? <laughs> and, and as I read that, the image of Darth Vader. Like, <laughs> uh, yes, it just, it, 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 it yes, it, it apparates in front of my, in front of my face. Apparates, right? that's a good word. Yes, this, this presence <laughs> of, of evil with, with the piece of good that Luke says, I know it's in you. I know mm. it's in you. Um, that that's what first comes to my mind uh, when I think about this. Um, but also what, questions for you, the pastor. So it's what makes Darth Vader so uh, rel- relatable, right? Because <laughs> we all see ourselves in him. We hope for ourselves to be in him. Those places of of darkness in us that we all know are there, and hope I, that there's good. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I, I you don't think, relate with Darth Vader. Well, no. What I'm saying, <laughs> I, I think the the you know the little narcissist in me watches these movies and assumes that I'm the hero all the time. Oh, really? It, 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 looks That's at the funny. hero and says, oh yeah, that would be me. Um, and and I can totally see you saying that for some reason. I don't know why, but. <laughs> right? I think I think a lot of us do this. And the, the truth from Solzhenitsyn is that actually, uh, if you want to really do yourself some good, you need to look at Darth Vader and see how how is that me? How, how is yeah. the villain more like me? The statement that came, like, shot out to me when you were reading there was his question at the beginning about how a human being becomes evil and good. Like, how does that, how does that happen? And the first thing that kind of came to mind uh, to me actually was this, what I see a lot in, in people and our world or culture is this relative, like relative truth. So my first question is for him and you, I mean, do we even know, what is good and what is evil, right? Or do we determine that for ourselves? It's his question kind of, it comes from a person who it seems like he, he has a definition of what true, what evil and what good is. Well, but yeah, that's, I mean, he, we got to kind of start there, like well, in our he, world, in your world, yes. what is evil? What is good? I mean, my definition of evil and good might be different than yours. And what is, you know, it'd be interesting well, I to think talk about that. He, he spends a large part of the book describing uh, what evil looks like um, as far as uh, the path a person goes from being accused of a crime they didn't commit um, to being forced to sign, um, you know, through torture, through torture of their family, forced to sign, you know, that they did commit the crime, being shipped off in horrible conditions and, you know, uh, seeing theft and uh, rape and murder and all these things, right? He, he talks about the evil that he witnesses and how a person partakes in that, even if maybe they wouldn't have done something like that before they were in these conditions, or they didn't know they had the capability to do it then. Um, So, yeah, that's an interesting idea. You know, there's obvious evils, right? And a lot of us, I think, would probably say that certain obvious evils we're not capable of. But I think to his point is that everybody's capable of evil, depending on their circumstance and what's going on. And just like also, which is a challenging idea that everybody's also capable of good. You know, there's for a long time in the church, there's been this, uh, I call it bad theology of just um, the brokenness of humanity, what, the, the pra- depravity of the soul, right? So that there, which basically means the belief that hum- humans are just hopelessly and eternally depraved. Um, that's kind of our starting point and that we need God because we are depraved, right? We need God to enter in because there's no hope for us to, to be good without the presence of God. Um, and a lot of that comes, I think, from people who read the Bible and start at Genesis 3 rather than at Genesis 1. Um, for me, that you know, that's an interesting... I'd like to think hear what you have to say about that, because for me, my theology says, starting at Genesis 1, where it says God created all things and he said it was good, right? He created humans and said it was very good. Uh, this is... So humanity was birthed in goodness... And then Genesis 3 enters the scene and we move towards, or we move away from our inherent goodness, our created goodness is what I believe. And sin entered the world, how we wanted to find sin. It's walking away from God's goodness and we and, and evil entered the picture. But good started, you know, so that, you know, I think a lot of people would say in the world, there are certain people that are just evil and there's no hope for them, you know. But to his point in the Gulag book, there's there's also a little glimmer side room of good in all people um and for me as a a person of faith that is hopeful you know that that good 
creation is still in even the evilest, is that even a word? Even the most evil of people have hope for redemption too. Um, I don't really have a question there. I'm just kind no. of like marinating, you know? <laughs> yeah. When I was thinking about the inverse, which is um, his, his biggest, he talks about this a lot where he, he says, you know, essentially communicating, how can I be the type of person who wouldn't go along with these evils? Um, and that that's kind of going back to what I said about me envisioning myself as the hero in these films. I think, I think it's scary for us um, to to take a look at the possibility that I could do something terrible, and I think it's that actually that that very act of not looking at it actually puts us at risk of what he says, which is doing bad things and thinking we're doing good and mm-hmm. ignoring ignoring the feedback we're getting from the world around us. And so, I think I think two things here. Um, my mind starts to go on the development of a person. How do we uh, how, how do we get to a point as a person where we tend to behave in ways that are really toxic with the people around us and, and are evil? Like how do we hurt or abuse people? Um, but as you were talking, I was thinking, what what does as far as sin, what 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 does that look like um, when you were talking about depravity? You know, is 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 we understand a person as they develop and become capable of doing bad things. Is that something that's developed? Is that something that's inherent in a person when they're born? Um, how, Cause like you said, people will wrestle with that depending on how they understand scripture or how, how they've been taught. What, what do you think about that? Yeah. I want to come back to, to that idea of thinking that I'm doing good while I'm doing evil, you know, kind of uh, mm-hmm. let's put that over. Let's okay. pin it up because I think it could be there's some good stuff there. But I think from a faith perspective, we we have to recognize, at least I recognize that with it's kind of like this overarching reality that sin is is both personal. It's in me as far as activities that I do that move me away from God's best for my life. That's how I tend to think of sin. Right, choices I make or activities that I do, things that I think and say that move me away from God's best for my life. Okay. And I define God's best for my life by the the word of God and Jesus's life. Right. Um, and there's also this universal movement away from God's best that, um, oh, I'm trying to think of the, the word people use to describe it, but that, that sin nature, right. That are not intentional choices I'm making to move away from God's good, but just a nature inside of me. So like almost like a, a leftover, uh, residue from that original act of walking away from God's best in the Garden of Eden, where humanity moved away from God's best. And that that little seed is in all of us, so that when we're born into the world, we have the this leftover mark of um, movement away from God's best that requires redemption. And I think that as a seed, it can be, um, it can germinate in our lives differently, depending on the environment I live in, depending on the experiences I have in my life, whether they're good or bad or from other people, the influence of evil or good. You know, I, I, I kind of keep going back to kind of what he was talking about there. The, it brings that to mind that there's a, there's seeds of good and evil in each of us and how they germinate is depending on what's fed through our lives. You know, what's through the hateful, evil actions of others it can germinate evil within ourselves, even if it's a response against the evil of others. It's interesting. Actually, that's a good question for you, Rob, as a psychologist. How much, how much of the brokenness people are living in in their lives currently are real are stem from trying to move away or deal with the brokenness that was inflicted upon them? You know, um, and even sometimes in they kind of repeat. I'm t- how do I say this? Mm-hmm. So, so someone in brokenness has been hurt doesn't necessarily move away from that brokenness and do good so that that doesn't repeat in someone else's life. A lot of times they repeat the same brokenness that was done to them just in different ways. So evil births evil just differently. Do you see that? Yeah. How does that work in the mind? Like, how does that happen? Yeah. So I'll respond to that. I just wanted to say one thing in response to something you said before too, which is even if you don't believe in the myth or the narrative of of the text that John's talking about I think 
you can look around and look just generally at how we humans treat each other. And even under the, the best of circumstances with the most affluence and the most wealth or in situations of the least affluence, the least wealth, whatever you, wherever you look, we humans are persistently capable and do enact harm on each other pretty significantly. And so that, that concept of the seed of evil or the capacity to evil, um, whether, whether you recognize uh, the truth of the narrative of Genesis, um, of the biblical narrative or not, I think, I think we can agree that, that's, that there's evidence of that being uh, metaphorically true, even if you don't believe it's literally true. Um, so, and then, okay, so, so how does this happen in a person? Um, so, and when I talk about this, uh, I'm not speaking to this in total, right? Uh, because man, the human being is so complex. Uh, I, I think just like currently when we look at back at psychological treatments from 50, a hundred years ago, where, you know, where we were putting ice picks up people's eyes to affect their brains. I mean, we, we were on the right track. We understood the brain was involved, but it, it was, it was pretty brutal. Right. Um, I think, you know, a hundred, 200 years from now, um, you know, uh, humans will look back on us and say, man, they were really ignorant. And w we are we're, like, we're incredibly complex as humans and we're trying to figure things out. And so when I say this, I'm not, this is the absolute truth. This is just, this is something I've observed and others have observed. And I think perhaps captures something pretty true. Okay. So, um, so you have, you have a developing person and, and some part of this is genetics and biology. Um, uh, this has been studied as far as temperament and children, for example, boys, you have, you have certain percentages of boys that will express a range of levels of aggression. For example, um, there's a small percentage, like, I don't know the exact numbers, 20 to 30% that have persistent excessive aggression where they'll bite, they'll kick, they'll hit, they'll punch, you know, things like that. And, and there's variance based on biology that's been observed. It's not just on the environment. And then, so, so there, there's this element where, where we have our inherited biology, uh, from our, from our parents and from our ancestors that, that evolution has influenced the expression of characteristics and personality types and all of that, uh, for adaptation to the environment. So, okay, so you, you got your genetic material that you're born with and you come into the world with, and then you have your primary environment with your parents. Um, and one, I think one specific thing that I wanna talk about is the concept of love. And, and one way that that looks is, is empathy. Um, you shared a story uh, uh, a week or two back in one of our conversations about, about this plumbing issue, right? And if, if you grow up in a scenario where truth is spoken, and it, and it is spoken and received by both the parents and the children, right? Especially the parents, though, where if you have a situation where a parent is distressed and they, they put the responsibility for that distress on the child and it causes the child pain, and then a parent completely ignores that pain or blames them for being in pain or something like that, you can develop patterns of how we relate with other people um, instead of, as you shared, what you did is you, you realized, oh, the truth of this is this is mine and I can own it. I can apologize for it. I can show that I care about how I affected you. This function of I need to be aware of how I affect you and how my behavior affects you, that that is empathy and it's a way that we love each other, which is... I'm going to acknowledge the truth of how I'm affecting you. And this is a very important factor in parenting and in development is the child has to learn this. They have to learn. I affect other people because if the strategy they learn is the way I get my needs met is by using or dominating or exerting power over other people, that's where a lot of problems begin to develop, um, where basically the person's strategy is, how do I take my care of myself right now? And that results in some major problems because you treat people in ways where they don't want to be around you. And then you have this longstanding issue of, I can't keep people, people around me, but I keep continuing to believe that it's other people that are the problem. Um, and so this installation of empathy, of I need to understand how I affect other people, is one of the major ways that we culture children um, to have empathy, to play well with others, um, to not escalate to violence, things like that. And so on a psychological level, that's how I would understand, you know, if we're going to call it evil, 
Um, this is how it develops. This is how it grows is when you're in a setting, a primary family environment where you're abused, where you're neglected, where you're, uh, you know, the truth isn't spoken, but instead lies are pervasive. Um, and every family has this to differing degrees because um, we're not perfect humans. Um, but that that is how I would understand in some part how this develops in a person. So something I want you to respond about later after I share another thought is that evil is genetic. I'm going to talk about that in a second. That's interesting. You were kind of talking about how there's a genetic role to play or a biological role to play of, you know, certain people are more aggressive than others and things like that. I think that's fascinating and we should talk about that a little bit more. But first, so one of the main obstacles to healing that I experience in, in my field or in the church is um, people's inability to, like you said, see themselves as um, part of the problem, right? So they, they are always looking towards outside sources as the reason things are a mess in their life or someone else or God, and they approach the mess of their life from that sort of strategy. And really what that kind of reveals what you were kind of saying is I think is the systemic problem of human beings is that we have sort of this um, orbit problem where our, we sit at the center, you know, it's like Galileo or he got, you know, set on fire by the catholic church because he said the earth didn't the universe didn't revolve around the earth right he said actually we revolve around the sun which was heresy in that in his day but that's really how we are as humans we think the world everything orbits around us and instead oftentimes well not oftentimes all the time if you enter into a walk with jesus a faith journey he is always inviting you out of the center which is just opposite of everything that is normal and natural for us as human beings but i thought about this it was interesting the role of evil in our lives i think part of the reason why this whole journey is hard for us is because and you can agree with me or disagree i'd love to hear your thoughts is that we often personify evil as something Okay, so it's someone or something that's outside of me that's being done to me. Um, and I, I tend to think of evil as privation of good, right? So evil evil isn't something or someone, or in the church we like to put horns on it and call it the devil, and then blame everything on it, right? Which keeps us from seeing uh, a different perspective that what if evil is just a lack of good or an absence of good in my life? or in the world, which then causes me to turn my view inward and hopefully lead me to a place of um, healing. If I don't know, I, th I think that's interesting. We do like to, in the church anyway, we like to personify evil or, or say it's this thing or that thing, which keeps us away from looking inward. Yeah, and, and I think, I mean, that's one of the premises of Solzhenitsyn's book is that um, I need to reckon with my responsibility um, in contributing to an environment where this can't happen uh, or where it doesn't happen because it tends to happen. Um, the privation, it, it made me think, uh, there's, a, uh, I think it's Karl Barth, uh, he talks about the nothingness, right? Das Nichtige, he calls it um, in one of his uh, theological um, writings, uh, as opposed to the presence of evil, it's actually the absence of good, it's this nothingness. Um, and my mind bounced to thinking about um, uh, persons in development and the question you asked before of how do we end up replaying these ways of being? Um, and I, th I think it's twofold. Um, when, when you're in an environment where you're injured deeply, especially as a developing human, where your, your, your personality, your person is being formed, when you're deeply injured, um, the, there's pain there, a lot of pain, and pain requires attention. Now the challenge is, is if, if the attention you need for care for that pain is from those very people or persons who hurt you, it becomes quite challenging because you need something from them, but they're also hurting you. And there's also an element of, uh, we learn a lot from modeling and imitating behavior. Uh, and a lot of times uh, the, the ways in which our families relate with each other, we internalize because we have to adapt to our family environment. And so uh, even as much as we are being hurt by the thing, you know, as a developing seven-year-old or five-year-old or 10-year-old, you, you don't have the conscious awareness of like, oh, this is, a, this is an unconscious pattern happening and I wanna be outside of it. You can't, because you can't imagine not having your parents. 
because um, would, you would die without them. And so the only option generally is to internalize the patterns and become a part of it so that you can survive in that system, so that you can function. Hmm. And we internalize these because, well, we internalize a lot of things. I mean, to be effective, we automate so much. Our brain does it for us. It's wonderful. We automate how to drive, how to walk, how to breathe, uh, all of that's, I mean, breathing's automated in your base brain, but I mean, like complex behaviors we automate, you know, the amazing things like playing sports or gymnastics Driving or whatever. to college at 7.30 in the morning and not knowing where I'm going. That's that's right. <laughs> oh, You're, how do I get here? <laughs> yes, it's automated. Yeah. And so it's, it's a beautiful thing because we internalize uh, the the truths of our environment. But the problem is, is if the truth of our environment is abusive and toxic, we internalize that as well. And then we find ourselves replaying these things in our current context. And if we have this belief that continues, which because it was true before, that the problem is outside of me, that might have been true initially because the person hurting you, abusing you, it's true. And that still is true. However, it gets complicated because I'm also an actor now. I'm behaving. And so the problem can also be back there and in me too now. And the challenge is, is uh, well, one of, one of the challenges of justice. Um, Solzhenitsyn talks about this. There, there's no mass justice for this rarely. Um, in, in Russia, you know, he, he spoke uh, in one part of it where he says, you know, and, and now that the gulags are gone, you know, people who enacted these atrocities are living next to me and there's no mass justice, right? That is a major problem, is that there's no mass justice. But what also remains a problem is that I can be just as much a part of the problem as the hurt that was done to me. And so this call that you're talking about from God, which is the best place to start, is to start looking at me. It's not the just place to start, but it is what it is. If we want to improve things, we start by looking at me. And when I sit with my patients, this is this is something we wrestle with a lot is how do we reckon with the fact that there won't be justice for what's been done to me. But if I want my life to be better, I have to reckon with what's going on in me. And that's not fair, but it also, it's what's happening. I, I think that is such an important point. And I think it's a hang up for a lot of people. You know, I, I hope a lot of folks in my church and the people that I um, minister to We'll take time to listen to this because I think it's so it's such a valuable point is that healing happens when both then and now are addressed. Right. And and I think people, like you said, get so caught up in I have this pain that was inflicted upon me in my life and it's it's altered the course of my life, the trajectory of my life, how I how I live in relationship with others. You have all this brokenness of failed relationships and children dysfunction. I mean, all, I mean, you, you name it. And, and what we want, especially with folks that I see come and pursue faith to try to have some relief from the pain they're experiencing is they then want God to enact that justice. They, so healing for them is, you know, somehow God removing all of the pain and getting rid of it, which is not how God necessarily works. God doesn't come in and snap his fingers and then remove all traces of the stuff you've in, had inflicted upon your life. Because in the miracle of faith, God does something even better. Uh, and I've seen this happen over and over again. And I've experienced in my own life where I had something traumatic happen to me God heals me by not removing it, but by re redeeming it, showing me um, it, that he was there with me, healing the pain, but also then using what I experienced for his good, you know, and which is even harder to think about in terms of uh, faith. And because we want God just to snap his fingers and take, get rid of all the pain. And oftentimes when God doesn't, then we're, you know, people are left wandering but, but there's some sort of middle ground where we have to enter into recognizing what was, like you said, what was done to us was wrong. That's truth. But then somehow, and the word normalize kind of came to my mind when you said aut this automate thing, when we experience the pain and then that pain becomes normal for us and then we start behaving and acting in that normal world that was created for us, even though it's abnormal, our lives are kind of shaped around this reality of this is how life works. This is how relationships work, whether we're just coping or we've lived so long in that dysfunction that it becomes normalized in our own lives. And we, we have trouble connecting with this reality that yes, we need healing from that past thing, but we also need to face the reality that that situation has left its mark on our lives. And 
that has to be dealt with too, you know, and that's yeah. really hard, right? <laughs> it's it's really hard because the the call to justice is still very real and right. Um, and so I have a question for you about that in a moment, but I wanted to give a practical example of how this might look too, um, where where it ends up perpetuating pain and suffering for the person who wants it to be resolved. Um, you know, if I, if a person had, you know, was, was in and say they were in a relationship with somebody who, who, uh, who would, you know, call them names and criticize them and cut them down when they were angry. Um, and the way the mind and the body responds to these traumatic experiences is they, they symbolize them, they lock them into place, and they create a, a way of adapting or responding to create safety. And one of the ways of creating safety is to see early signs of it and to figure out how to avoid it, okay? To find the youngest element of it and then do what you can to avoid it. And that, that becomes a part of a person. Um, and it's meant to be adaptive. So if, you know, if I see this type of anger again, I know to stay away because it could get ugly and violent again, because violence is real and ugliness is real. But the challenge is to say the person's, you know, uh, transforming who they're, you know, who they're in relationship with. They've learned, um, you know, they've learned maybe perhaps about boundaries or they're in a new community and they start a new relationship with somebody who gets angry, but isn't abusive. Um, what can happen is you can see a replay of this same type of response where I see similar anger. And so I'm going to do my avoidant behavior, which is say something like, you don't love me. I've got to get out of here. Maybe that's one of the behaviors. Um, and if you're with somebody who isn't actually abusive, it's going to be very confusing to them. Their initial response will usually be, oh my goodness, I, I don't want you to feel that way about me. I'm so sorry. What can I do to address it? What can we do to fix it? Um, and unfortunately the thing to do to fix it is to not be angry, but that's not possible. And so up front, that will be a, a common type of response. But as it continues to perpetuate, the person who's getting angry, maybe justly about something else or about something with the person, but they're expressing it effectively and healthily. And the injured person, everybody's injured, but in this case, the injured person in the, in the scenario that I'm talking about has the same response over and over and over again, because the danger is out there, not in me, because it was out there. Um, they'll, they'll keep having the same response, and the new person will begin to get exasperated uh, because what it essentially says is, you don't believe me, you don't trust the type of person that I've shown myself to be, and over time, intimacy tends to break down and the relationship tends to potentially resolve, um, and then the person is left with new pain of broken relationship and often a lot of confusion of why is it happening and, and who's responsible for it. Um, and back to this, there's both the then and the now, and the then is true and it... <sighs> we don't discount it and your pain is real and also we're affected by our pain and how we continue to relate with others and the best path for reducing my own suffering is one of them is reckoning with what's happening in me and that's hard it takes humility i hate doing it when i'm doing it myself i i i fight it i push against it i blame other people i deflect i defend because it does not feel good um, it's really hard to do and it's also the pathway to getting out of these patterns. Well, because pain perpetuates more pain, right? I see that in my own life, and I see that in you know every human being ever. It, and and usually we perpetuate pain upon other people, you know. And a lot of times, I, I think something else I was thinking about was this reality of, and we keep going back to this idea of looking inward, right? But when we personify evil, something something was done to me that was traumatic, um, and that's that that person is the personification of evil, that event, and and it's over there. So that way And perhaps now, they are. And they absolutely. But mm -hmm. now years and years removed, I'm still pointing that I'm blame blame comes to word. Right. I still blame all of what's going on in me right now, whether it's from my own behavior or not, I can't find healing because I have to resolve that that person or that situation was the cause of who I am now. So I don't take ownership of anything because all the blame and personification of evil is pushed upon someone else, which again is what we're kind of talking about, the reality of 
finding healing is recognizing that that past affected me, but also that right here and now, the behaviors that have come out of, you know, the unfortunate reality that pain was inflicted upon my life, but I, but it's still, I'm now perpetuating that situation in someone else. And, you know, for a person like in your example, who, who responds from emotions of anger from other people, then they, the breakdown of new relationships and new resentment forms and from resentment forms anger and from anger forms evil you know the the further we move away from what i believe is this created nature of good inside of us the further we remove ourselves from that the more i believe we become capable of greater acts of evil you know and and let me i have a question for you because uh, when you're saying that it made me think of um dialectical behavior therapy which is a behavior program for individuals with border, borderline personality disorder, um, which very commonly have horrible traumatic histories, um, but get a lot of uh, stigma because of, of the way that they had to adapt to those horrible traumatic histories are unpleasant in relationship. They're really unpleasant. They can be scary. Uh, the things that happen, oftentimes they're suicidal activity, self-harm, things like that. It can be really scary, um, but it's rooted in a painful trauma and a painful history. And an approach of DBT is holding two things together, which is empathy and compassion along with truth-telling. Um, and, and they both have to be consistently together because there's this very strong truth of you have been Evil has been perpetrated upon you, and that will always be awful, and it will always be vile, and it's wrong. And you need care and kindness and compassion for that. And, and this is really hard, but it's, it's necessary. It, the, both of them are vitally necessary. And we need to look at what's happening now truthfully. We need to look at what, what the effects are, where you need new skills, where you need better relationship strategies, where you need better people. Um, you know, those things go together. And when I thought of that, I, I wanted to ask you, you know, what, wh what was Jesus's response um, to the hurting sick people that perhaps even had evil perpetrated upon them? Um, what, what's, what's, the, what's the Christian, the biblical response to that? You know, the story comes to mind, um, and if you haven't heard, it's a, a great story. Actually, I don't know the reference offhand, but um, Jesus was teaching, uh, I believe it's in Bethel, and he was in his house, his home, and teaching away to all kinds of people, and this group of friends brought a paralytic, couldn't get into the house to get their buddy healed, and Jesus um, healed him, right? And I have to look up the passage because it's so cool. But he heals him, forgives him of his sin, and then he tells him to return home. It's an interesting thing that I think often gets missed. But the reality is in, in the ancient world, uh, if you were uh, paralytic or you had some kind of uh, deformity, um, it was thought that you had that deformity because of some kind of generational sin, right? So it wasn't just you just, like we understand it now, you happen to be born, unfortunately, with a physical um, uh, you know, disability. Back then, you you were not only disabled, but you were dirt, right? And families would would turn you to the to us to the side and hide you away, and uh, sometimes even just out, you'd be an outcast. And so, this man's uh, reality wasn't just that he had brokenness in his body that Jesus healed, um, but he also had sin in his life um, because of the pain that was inflicted upon him because of his circumstance, which Jesus also dealt with, right? So he forgave him his sin. Um, there's also, you know, in, in Jesus's day, I think the reason it was so radical was because he wasn't just forgiving the man his sin, but uh, the Pharisees would have been like, whoa, 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 you're, you're forgiving generational sin now, right? Because the man's wounds, it wasn't just about his Sin. It, it was his it, his deformity was attached to generational sin. It's a powerful thing that Jesus says. You know your your sins are forgiven, and, and now pick up your mat and go home. Well, for Jesus to tell that man to go home was equally radical, because he didn't have a home. He was ostracized from his families. The reason his friends brought him to Jesus was because he wasn't with his family. There was dysfunction going on in that situation. And Jesus sent him back to that place to also bring restoration there and healing there. Um, and I tell that whole story and now lost your initial question. Well, let, 
man. Isn't that funny? I was so no. like dying into the tell me remind me your question again so I can connect the dots in my own brain no, while I was telling you're, that you're story. Saying, you're saying <laughs> how how God responds to us. Uh, yeah, so he doesn't just heal the man to heal the man, right? And that's often what we want, right? That's back to our original question. Now my brain is connected. We want God to heal. And that man wanted his crippled legs to be mended. And God entered in and did that, but he did not stop there. He recognized that there were realities of that man's life that were there because of his brokenness and the wounds that were inflicted upon him, not because of just because of his disability, but the reality of, you know, being a, a lame person in the ancient world. So he, he healed that. And then he sent him back to do the work of restorative relationship in other, you know, in his family structure and in his life. And we don't know the whole story, but it connects to this idea that I think God is interested in holistic healing in our lives. And what I mean by that is he wants to do the work of healing my brokenness that's been afflicted upon me from the evil of others, the evil actions of others. But he also wants to do the work of healing me from the damage that is caused in how I treat and live my life now. And and that's at a, fundam- a fundamental basis. One of the healing elements of psychotherapy is the participation in a healing relationship with someone that 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 has the elements the atmosphere the environment of of health of health and of of a healthy relationship and that fosters healing it's not the only thing but it's it's healing in community healing and getting healthy relationship and being in healthy relationship that's often what's so desperately needed um, as as people are reeling from pain and i also have I see that as people are reeling in pain, a common response, especially when you say the evil is out there with stigma is a common response, both in the ancient world and now um, is to view people who are hurting and broken as other. Um, and when we're in a place where, where we actively uh, tribalize each other based off of these things, we forget that my neighbor is, is connected to me. Um, and, and, Solzhenitsyn talks about this as neighbors were uh, neighbors were uh, snitching on neighbors to avoid going to prison, but they would go to prison anyways because eventually it comes for you, no matter who it is. And this concept of like I'm not going to lie, and I'm going to tell myself the truth that I have responsibility for my neighbor. Um, and, and this connects with the commandment of Jesus to love your neighbor as you love yourself. Um, th- that in my view, both from a psychological perspective and therapy is one of the elements of causes healing. But spiritually, this is a deeply true thing of it's, it's a deeply, it's a deeply held truth that healthy community, healthy relationship, truthful, loving relationship fosters healing. It's pretty yeah. profound. You know, when we, when we move ourselves outside of the center of our universe, um, that's often the first step towards the healing that God invites us to and uh, the healing that you're talking about um, in the mind and in the in the body and the heart and the spirit is is this uh, they're disconnected. You know, anytime we move and really the pathway to healing is moving out of the center, you know, and a couple of things came to mind as you were talking about that, that the problem is, though, that pain removes me from relationship most of the time. Right. It, it it makes me distance myself from the very thing that I need to find well, healing. It's meant to signal a need for help. I mean, that's biologically right. what it's meant to be. But, but a, it's a so often the result of my pain is relationship, right? So I end up doing the thing that leads me to more pain and leads me further away from my pathway to healing because I can't trust. I can't live into, you know, the it's like the medicine I need, I, I'm walking away from. You know? And and a very, like, a very important truth is uh, how, like, the, it starts with me. Um, how do I become a person that generates love and healing around me, even in the midst of my own pain and brokenness? It has to start with me. And if if we each take that responsibility, which is, I think, what Jesus commands us to do, Instead of focusing on the log in your neighbor's eye, you need to pay attention to, or the speck in your neighbor's eye, attend to what's blinding your vision. Um, that That's, again, there's an injustice to our world, and I think that's one of our hopes as Christians, is that there eventually will be systematic and true justice. But for now, in the absence of 
of that, um, the best path forward is uh, choosing love and being a person who will uh, foster healing and those around you and healthy community. You, yep. You said a word that um, compassion. I was actually just I'm talking about that for this Sunday and this idea of compassion is my willingness to suffer with someone. So compassion means, right? So I'm willing, yeah. I've moved out of my, the center of my universe so much that I'm willing to, to enter into your world and suffer with you. And I, th I think that is one of, not, I don't think, it is one of the most powerful experiences you can have is for someone to enter into your place of suffering and say, I'm with you, you know? Mm -hmm. And for me, yeah. I like, I have chill bumps talking about it because I think it, we, and you keep saying that thing, justice, like we, we want justice to be done, but God doesn't come and give us justice the way we think. You know, and uh, all throughout the biblical account of Jesus's life, he's always having arguments with his followers about this because they want justice. They've been wronged by everyone and everything. Yeah. And they want, they believe Messiah is coming to provide justice. And But he is coming to provide justice, just not the way we think, you know, and the God is always doing this, giving us the thing we need that we don't understand we need until we see the reality of that that's what we need. <laughs> and yeah. justice, God gives justice by coming into our pain and saying, I see you, saying that your your pain is real and I'm not okay with it. And I'm going to show you the pathway to healing by by starting with compassion. And, and, and then empowers us to do that same thing. And I, I think mm. one of the most, this is so beautiful when we can and, and so often when we suffer with people rather than try to fix them or rather than, you know, try to figure things out for them, but to come alongside them and start with compassion, to suffer with them, to recognize their own pain, we also free them to be in a place where they can start to engage in relationship again, you know, and start to hear loving truth that says, you know, your pain has, has had horrible effects on your life. And let's start, let's, let's look at those together. You know, let's look at the evidences, the marks, the scars left on your life and start to move towards a place of healing. You know, um, it, I guess I keep, I keep hearing in my mind. So if you're listening today and you, this is you, and this is, this is all of us to a certain degree, right? It's kind yeah. of the topic we're talking about the, the, the place of evil in our lives and the impact of evil on our lives and good. But if you're if you're like identifying with this as as a listener today, um, just hear hear the truth. I think we're trying to communicate is one, your pain is real, and we see it. Yes. You know, we're not with you here, but you 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 are seen. And ultimately, I believe that if you let him, God would say that powerful truth into you that He sees your pain, um, and that two, let that. Let that reality lead you to see how it's impacted the way you treat others, the way you are in relationship, and maybe use that as a place where you can finally move into some real change, you know, out of your brokenness and into wholeness. Yeah, and the call to all of us to be people of compassion, um, people who suffer with each other, realizing that everyone's mm -hmm. our neighbor. So back to that original question, how a human being becomes evil or good. I think I want it's important to communicate the reality that no one is um, hopelessly lost to evil, you know, and, and I think a lot of times in deep pain, people can become convinced that they don't have any hope. And part of this conversation, I think, is so important because if we believe that in the core of every person, there is the seed of good and the seed of evil. Um, that means we all have a journey to overcome the influences of evil in our lives. That's a part of all of us. But we it's all have... The, it's yeah. a responsibility we have. We, Everybody, we have every human. There, it's in yes. you. It's a part of you. What, however you believe about it, you know, whether it's a spiritual thing or not, it's, it's obviously in all of us. But also... And we forget this in the church, God forgive us, but also in every person, there is the seed of good. There is the hope for redemption. If you are feeling hopeless today, like your life is so 
messed up and broken that there is no hope for for you at all and you're just destined to be alone and wounded until you aren't here anymore hear this truth that within you is the seed of good now it may be tucked away in a forgotten corner of your personhood but it is there and you were created with it and for it that good is the reason we are. And, and I think we, we do a disservice to the world a lot of times in the faith community by saying there are some people that are just gone, you know, so they're so evil that there's nothing left in them and they're not worth our time. Really what we need to do is pray that God deals with them, um, which I think puts us in the opposite place of compassion, right? We can't, we can't, if we don't believe that people are inherently good, even people who do horrible atrocities and evil, then we've we've given up hope, I believe. And as a person of faith, I, I have, I've been convinced by the spirit of God in my own life that every person is worth redemption. You know? Yes. That's the truth. And the story of Darth Vader, um, that's yes. the truth. Yes. Bringing that's the truth. That's <laughs> the truth. And one of my favorite uh, quotes from GK Chesterton, where he responds to an article where somebody's, you know, com- you know, saying what's, what's so terribly wrong with the world and talking about all the terrible things with the world. And he writes back, dear sirs, I am yours truly. GK oh, Chesterton. I am yours yes. truly. Yep. Wow. That's powerful stuff, you know? So we are what's wrong. And we also have what's right in us. And yes. The capacity for healing, the capacity for re- restoration yes. and redemption. And, and if, if we want the world to improve, we have a responsibility to attend to it and cultivate it and make it as big as possible. And uh, this has been a great time, John. Yeah. It's been a pleasure talking with you, staring at some of the hard-to-see places and uh, um, seeing the truths that are there. Uh, thanks for joining us. We hope you continue to join us as we share continuing episodes and conversations and as we continue to look at the beautiful collision of head and heart as we continue staring into the sun. The way we find ourselves is by staring into the sun.